Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Today, as I promised, we have a very special episode. Uh, we have a guest from Scotland. He's called John. Hi, John. Hey, how are you Or should I say, hello, comrade John. Uh, hello. Nice to meet you. <laughs> he's my he's my British spy, <laughs> or, or Scottish spy, so to speak. Uh, but yeah, unlike my previous episodes, which have all been terribly depressing, as usual, this one's actually going to be... I, I hope so, at least. Pretty fun. Until you start looking at where the jokes come from. But, uh, yeah. John has written a book about Soviet anecdotes. And you have heard a lot of them on this show. And, yeah. I mean, how, how does an English speaker write a book about Soviet jokes? How does he translate them? And, hey, what, what's going on with, with all of this? Because I'm super enthusiastic here. And, yeah, we haven't spoken much with John previous to this interview, so it's all new, new to me. So, yeah, John, introduce yourself, please, and tell us all about your book. It's exciting now that it's finally out there that uh, people can get their hands on it. How does someone like me end up writing this book? Um, well, by accident, I guess, uh, I decided that I... There was something about uh, the early Stalin period, the 1930s, that kind of fascinated me ever since high school. Um, this sense of a period in which people were super shocked and excited and in this strange position where a whole new world was apparently being made. They were being promised all sorts of things and yet not very much of it was being delivered. And then they're being increasingly... Um, brutalized and terrorized and they're having to try and reconcile this incredibly lofty dreamlike rhetoric of what's going on with their everyday uh, depressing intense difficult realities and for much of the, the the scholarship at the time I could only read it in English um, that there was out there it seemed as though it was interpreted people's experience was interpreted either as though oh well you know they didn't know any better and so they just kind of loved big brother and thought okay there's some problems but stalin's the man or that they were kind of bitterly resentful of the whole thing all along and just in public pretended because they were so scared they pretended to agree with any of the principles of the of the party and neither of those things really convinced me very much um, these days, a lot of historians talk more about uh, like a kind of gray zone between accepting and rejecting. But that also didn't really satisfy me because I thought, well, people 
people are smarter than that and people kind of want answers they want their lives to make sense um so what does it mean to say you live in a gray zone in the middle and then i started coming across these these jokes these anecdotes and i was like wait a sec this definitely sounds like people who are thinking who are prepared to take risks and push back against the system but it also doesn't really sound like they're committed opponents to the regime either so i thought okay jokes are fun this could be my way to try and actually think about and find out about this period and what what was going on psychologically and emotionally and socially for these people so i thought okay let's let's go write a phd on this because you know that's what sensible people do um and i set off into the into the archives to find the jokes and people generally told me that uh, there was no way i would find anything and that i was a fool to go and try um and i'm happy to say i proved them wrong i understand your jokes because for one i use them all the time in my show cuz uh, like i explained to people my tagline is happiness is mandatory and uh, what a lot of people don't understand is that from one part happiness is mandatory means that the party always wanted people to be happy in their own way they enforced this happiness but people kind of internalized this whole issue by stating that hey i will be happy not because you tell me to but because i shall find my own happiness you know and they they made these jokes as a you know a, a means to survive for me here personally the fact that you have made this book is a great kind of you know honor actually because i'm in my stalin series now and uh, you know i'm going through the history uh, detail by detail uh, starting from stalin's birthday at this point and we are in the stalin series just at the moment when he got power the 30s have just started basically and uh, yeah it's great cuz this is when he starts his most terrible stuff but at the same time this is when um, this is when nice people in odessa decide that political anecdotes anecdote is going to be a nice form of somehow i don't know resisting enduring surviving or something like that and uh, yeah my my favorite one from from like at least early days but this is this happened after stalin died obviously but was um, was one about um, in russian it's like почему ленин носил ботинки а сталин сапоги <laughs> Why did Lenin wear shoes, but Stalin, Stalin did wear uh, did wear boots? Well, because by Stalin's time, Russia was in shit up until knees. That's a really good variation. I haven't heard that one before because that is a super popular one that I found so many times uh, during my research. I know, I know. There, I often kind of worry about the fact how will I translate these anecdotes from Russian. Because a lot of them contain word plays and and word plays and kind of double meanings of words, uh, like I don't know. Uh, for example, <clears throat> under Lenin, everything was 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 like in a tunnel. Around there's darkness. Forward there's light. Under under Stalin, like in the bus, one is leading. Half half of them, half of the people are sitting. Other ones are are basically shaking themselves. Under Khrushchev, like in the circus, one is speaking, but everything laughs. Under Brezhnev, well, like in cinema, everyone waits until the se- seance will be over. Yeah, it's tricky because like the the bit the one about people sitting on the bus, as you know, but other people won't know, sitting to sit in Russian also means doing time in prison. So exactly, half are sitting in prison, half are shaking in fear of it. Yeah, and that's that's the kind of joke which, if I just translate into English literally, as I did just now, then you know a, a lot of joke is a lot of a lot of this joke is lost. But there's there's like deeper meanings there. Another one is like <clears throat> after they changed the name of, from Stalingrad to Volgograd, 
from the uh, from the other side uh, of of life a telegram arrived <clears throat> согласен Yosef Volgin <laughs> well do you want to translate that or shall I <laughs> no you can you can just it's essentially Stalin from beyond the grave saying that he confirms this change from Stalingrad to Volgograd but therefore he's changing his name to Volga as well yeah it's excellent yeah I guess, mm, this was a test by the way thank you for actually learned thank you for actually oh you obviously read those all, all these things in Russian as I see here. Yeah, it was, that was tricky. I mean, I would say that I've got, I've got pretty good at reading the language of um, Bolshevik reports and reading jokes that appear in them. But it, it's funny, like you can walk out of an archive having read everything, no problem. And somebody stops you on the street and asks me a question in Russian. And I'm like, um, not really sure what you just said. It all it all depends. You get to know a certain context and a certain vocabulary. Oh, about certain vocabulary, this this here gentleman is obviously meaning uh, the so-called <clears throat> mat. <laughs> I I, mm-hmm. I I it's basically uh, by this point you should know like all the swear words ever. And Mr. Rabinovich should is... be a close friend by this point, same as Armenian radio or Radio Yerevan. Those are my favorite ones, by the way. Those are really cool and interesting, and yet they didn't seem to be the ones that were around in the 30s. So Radio Yerevan, I guess, comes later anyway. In well, its, yeah, Radio Radio Yerevan, obviously, but uh, what I have found out in my research is that a lot of these jokes came from Odessa, like I said before, including the ones in the 30s. Because for some reason, uh, Ukrainian territories of, of the USSR back then, and, you know, they're contested now because of the whole conflict thing, but... Odessa is considered basically the capital of humor in, in like all the Soviet world. And a lot of that goes to, uh, a lot of thanks for that goes to Ilfan Petrov, basically, who wrote the nice books about Ostap Bender, the 12 chairs and the golden calf. And since then, Odessa is kind of considered this, this sneaky, sneaky joke capital of, of, uh, of post-Soviet world. Because everyone, literally everyone uh, who's post-Soviet knows that Odessa is run by Jewish mafia. <laughs> that's that's not even that's not even anti-Semitical jokes. They they themselves consider like uh, there's always a Jew from Odessa. That's the thing. That's the Ashkenazi capital of the planet Earth, if I would say so. Other ones Vilnius, by the way, but it's kind of weird. But yeah, about about those things. What's what's your favorite one? Well, what what really inspired you, and and what made you like think the most about all the situation? What's your favorite political joke then? You know, this is a question I really need to prepare better for because whenever I speak to people, they're always like, what's your favorite joke? And I kind of get stuck because to me... My answer is simple. Hmm? Communism. Oh, you cut out at that moment, so I missed the punchline. <laughs> I didn't Did cut out. Did That's you... what th- th- that, wasn't, that is the punchline. Was it communism? Yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah, this, I mean, that, 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 that's also a joke. Tell me, tell me the shortest political joke ever. Communism. Or what's the absolute longest joke? The five-year plan. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot. Of cool and how, 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 really... how shall, how shall we find out when communism shall finally arrive? Well, you know, they'll, they'll tell it uh, in the radio and the newspapers. If, if the people shall have TVs still by then, then you know, maybe they'll tell it uh, through the TV as well. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's one I I would share with you I, that I kind of bookmark that 
I like because it really it kind of sums something up about the way that people continue believing and seeing things through the lens that they they already like, regardless of what the the regime tries to do. Um, so it goes: In need of some money, a Jew climbs a tall tree and leaves a note there for God, asking for fifty rubles. Down below, he is caught and questioned by an agent who takes him to the secret police to explain why he climbed the tree. The Jew explains frankly, thinking to attract him to the atheist movement, the agent assures him that God will not help, but Soviet power will. So the agent gives him 25 rubles. The Jew then just runs immediately back to the same tree and thanks God for the 25 rubles, but asks him in future to please send the money directly because the secret police only gave him half, clearly keeping 25 rubles for themselves. Yeah, that's, that's excellent one. And, uh, you know, a lot of these jokes, by the way, uh, as you researched, they came from the real life, because, uh, you know, I, as I interviewed the people who lived there, and one of them is, like, a friend of mine who served in, you know, everyone served in the Soviet army. and But one of my friends served in an artillery kind of department. Uh, and he kind of lulled every day when he saw that, you know, they had this political corner and he serves in a in, an artillery battalion, artillery detachment of the Soviet Red Army. And every time they go to training, they go past this huge wall, which is full with like Soviet posters. And the biggest poster says, and that an artillery battalion, <clears throat> our goal is communism. <laughs> like uh, it's, it's in, in Russian, it's not a tell communism. So the goal and a, the goal and aim, where the place where to aim is the same in Russian too. So I, I don't know if I could explain that right, but I mean, you could probably say our target is our target. And that you... would work. That's one of that's one of the tricky things about doing any of this is that I can't remember who said it, but they said like analyzing jokes is a bit like dissecting a frog. At the end, it's a terrible mess, and the frog is. But dead. the frog was already dead in the beginning. If we speak about this, if we speak about Stalin's era, because you know. Stalin uh, Stalin was a man who basically decided to shoot everyone. Everyone who appeared, who who liked to be a threat, who wasn't a threat, he basically shot literally everyone. So um, at one point you had to deal with the fact that uh, everyone else was like, you know, out to get you. And one of the one of the things that really really was there in Stalin's out of one of the 30s anecdotes is that there was this uh, question which kind of you know, shows the whole situation and attitude toward by, by the people toward the system was like, hmm, will there be KGB under communism? Answer, no. By that point, people will learn how to arrest themselves. Ah. See, a lot of these jokes, which are like, they're only funny if you understand that they're true. That's why they're funny. The punchline is often cut out of the political joke because everything is yeah. depressive and terrible. Uh, and and then 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 it becomes funnier because it's like ha ha it's funny because it's it's true thing. Yeah, it's it's part of the the core of a lot of these jokes is essentially finding a way to laugh at something that is really scary. It's this gallows humor effect where um, if you can laugh at something which is unavoidable, inescapable. So if it's the gallows, literally, you're on your way to be to be hanged, and you can make a joke about oh, it looks like it's going to be a nice day. It doesn't change the fact that you're going to go and be hanged, but you're able to say something absurd. You can put something very serious like death into this genre or way of talking where things aren't even meant to make sense. And for a moment, you get this placebo effect of feeling so much better about it, because if you can laugh at something, you generally it's like the opposite of being afraid of it, at least for a few moments. Yeah, that is that is exactly what I'm trying to you know, uh, state. Happiness is mandatory. In both ways, you have to be happy and show your, 
you have to show like your your polite face to the system, especially in Stalin's era, because uh, you have to be a shining example of the <clears throat> of Homo Sovieticus, the new Soviet man. At the same time, people are understanding what's going on because everyone's everyone's uh, under pressure a lot and. Like I said, a lot of these jokes were made in Odessa, and in Odessa is where Holodomor happened in 1937. So, when you when you hear a lot of these jokes from the 30s, when you'll read them in the book, you will understand that they're coming from peoples who are basically, you know, well, they, they weren't starving just yet, but uh, a lot of uh, la- later like jokes who who uh, were being made up in 1938, 1939. They're coming from survivors of a massive, massive famine who have just basically been forced to starving. Yeah, that, that's earlier, right? That's that's the beginning of Holodomor the Holodomor was 37, I think. The the Holodomor is... The, the Holodomor, the, the, the famine, is from is during collectivization, so that's... Oh, sorry, I made a mistake um, there. In the, in the beginning years of the 30s and ending around 32, 33, and then the so-called great terror however we want to call it that's the 37 38 i'm sorry i made a mistake here with the years all the terror blends together after a while look i have a <laughs> it, it does it does really because you know all the purges of my people in, in latvia happened in 1941 and then in 1949 look stalin did all, all stalin managed to do terrible things all the time throughout the eras and i and i messed up two years i'm very sorry i apologize <laughs> i do not have all the timeline together and i probably should have known that this is my mistake uh but but in general yeah this this whole no it's Don't fine worry about it, man. look this is not a this is not a t- exact science podcast but when i'll when i'll get to the episode about that then i'll be precise but now i'm on your jokes now i'm trying to speak about jokes so you know but but in general yeah what you must understand is that the people are um people who are making up making this stuff up uh, they're actually using it as a tool of survival because hey, uh, if if you're uh, if you're surviving collectivization, which by the way happened literally, because Lenin got his cow stolen by kulaks, which is a surprise by me. I think you I think you have, might have heard that, but uh, Lenin Lenin before Stalin came from a kind of intellectual family, and they gave him farm. And during the famine years, uh, he kind of supported the idea that the government shouldn't help the Russian peasants. By the way, the American citizens helped. But uh, after that, the angry peasants stole Lenin's cow. That is where the idea of kulaks comes from. Because some angry peasants literally stole <laughs> Lenin's cow. Uh, about more about your book, though. Uh, what was what was the kind of the challenges, and what was what was the final conclusion? Then you know, what did you find out about my people in the book? Because I call they they are my people. I was born in the Soviet Union, so I know, but. What mm. conclusions do you make from all the situation? Okay, just the easy questions. Um, just, 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 just the, just the tip, just to see how it feels. <laughs> and then we can <laughs> we can ease our way in over the the course of the podcast. Um, I guess what I found that is probably not a surprise to you, but I think is a surprise to most Westerners. Just we've kind of grown up with this narrative of thinking of the period of the Stalin's period in particular is just being so impossible to understand, like, oh, it's this horrendous authoritarian dictatorship. So everyone must have experienced it in a way that we could never really hope to relate to. How could we imagine living under a a terroristic authoritarian regime? And yet what I found is that as we, we can see in the jokes, the fact they continue telling them, even though telling a joke could get you 10 years in the gulag, 
if you were denounced or if you were called ah gulag improves uh, morale <laughs> it does it it rehabilitates you um people are people are essentially coping with this regime in ways that are super recognizable to us who haven't lived under those uh those particular conditions and so it had struck me for a long time that we seemed very keen to treat these people in the past very very differently to ourselves and think okay well they must be either brainwashed or extremely angry and resisting at all costs but mostly people just try and make do and get by um and they could joke as a way of trying to do both that you try and grapple with things that don't make sense you put them in this kind of playful provisional state of humor you can assert a sense of your own your own agency i guess because you can go okay i can't change anything about the situation but i'm certainly not going to allow myself or the people that i care about to think that i'm an idiot and believe in all of this stuff completely so i'm going to make a joke and then i feel better about myself and then i'm still going to have to go to work the next day regardless there was there was also this continuing myth that i think a lot of people still believe that the the whole of society was atomized under stalin that everybody was scared of everybody it's this like hobbesian man as wolf to man situation um and you know the it, the myth of pavlik morozov pavlik morozov yeah i spoke about that mm. uh the problem is that 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 was the society that they tried to build from the upper but it didn't work obviously because you know there is this moment but it's, it's a lot of in our uh, and this is kind of an answer both you and the, the listeners because you just literally explained why I, what, what I mean when I say happiness is mandatory is my show's tagline. This is it. This is the jokes. This, this Yeah, this and I think that's really cool. I like the double meanings. Those are. but Because that's the thing. Uh, one of the double meaning jokes, by the way. Vovochka, za što tebe vignali iz klasa? Ja klasovi vrag. Basically, it's Vovochka, for what did you, for, for what were you sent out of the classroom? Well, I'm the enemy of the class. So... <laughs> It's a thing, but uh, it really kind of set in here, at least in, in the Baltics. I don't, I don't particularly know how it was in, in Russia, but uh, here we have this KGB museum where I take all my visitors to, and yeah, there were a lot of mistrust going around because you know, especially with, with the books and everything. But this attitude that people could betray you—it happened. Yet people somehow managed to overcome it. You know, there were always people whom you could trust, people whom you could like share these jokes with. And what I have to say is that these Soviet jokes, like if you Soviet jokes, are also kind of a way of testing out society. Yes, hundred percent. If you if you like like it's a uh, it's like if you tell you know in your workplace you tell kind of a more or less more or less innocent joke that and someone laughs and then you tell a bit like more political joke and someone laughs. Then you know that hey 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 this guy this guy knows this guy knows he's he's one of us now so you know you could you could probably trust him or something. Exactly, it's like I I thought about it in in the book after I read this really this this cool other book about um the Italian mafia that it's kind of the same deal like people who are in the mafia so think of the joking mafia here as well they are not allowed to identify each other. Like if, if I if I think you're in the mafia, I'm in the mafia, I can't just say, hey, hey, I think you're in the mafia, I am. You have to use subtle signs, you have to dress a certain way, use certain phrases or find somebody else who is a mutual point of contact that you both trust in order to be able to make contact. And I thought, well, in under Stalin, they've made joke tellers like criminals. So that means they're probably going to be trying to communicate in ways that actual criminals, according to any government system, 
um, are going to have to communicate. So with jokes, you can do exactly what you said, test the waters a bit, just leave a certain pointed silence, raise an eyebrow, and you can begin to detect the people around you if they are going to play along, if they share a certain view with you. But at least with the, the jokes, you have a certain certain degree, depends when you told it and where, certain degree of plausible deniability. You're like, oh, I didn't mean anything by it. No, it was just a joke. Yeah, and it was it was like kind of really, really uh, important because uh, people, you know, people are still like social a lot, <laughs> even even today as through social media or something but back then this was uh, this is your way on on like liking people like adding friends on facebook basically you you built up your network and uh, as in the soviet union whom you knew was much more important than who you were was um, that that was extremely important because otherwise the whole black market couldn't even function and without the black market the soviets would have collapsed way way more faster and that, by the way, you kind of have to blame Stalin for that as well, if if you think about it, because during the collectivization era, you know, when uh, when our nice friend, the comrade Uncle Joe, uh, like I call him, because we have a segment called on our show called "Ask Uncle Joe Anything," and then then I actually get up quotes from from Stalin and try to find my best answers. Uh, uh, but but yeah, back then, you know, and during the collectivization era, when people were basically, well, when their stuff was being taken away. And when this, when Pavlik Morozov was presented as the hero of the nation, literally, he was in children's school books, and and um, yeah, in the 30s they also used Japanese as the main enemy. By the way, not not the Americans, mind you, mm-hmm. which is interesting because uh, they used Japanese, uh, especially after the Halkingal events and uh, the the lake events around there, but uh, the, their border struggles. But but yeah, people just kind of tried to connect with each other. It was a way of way of uh, communicating. My QA person kind of doesn't like when I put too much jokes in this episode, in my episodes, so I, I have started doing that less. But hey, I'm gonna get loose on this one. You can go crazy now. No, I know, right? But uh, it's like one of them is this is not from the 30s. It's it's from from uh, Gagarin era from the 60s, but it's great because <clears throat> Armen- Armenian radio gets asked, "Is there life on Mars?" Armenian radio answers, "Well, we do not know, but when communism arrives, there certainly won't be left any." <laughs> yeah and yet despite that exactly what what you're saying that that is surprising for so many people is that of, of course people were still trying to make connections and still trying to find people that they could trust and there's just been this weird view from america from western europe as though oh no no everyone was terrified everyone feared their child and thought they were another pavlik morozov uh, and that there would be a denunciation if if the kids overheard you talking or and yet that part of the reason I think that that idea continued is that whilst it's because in lots of memoirs and lots of interviews and lots of people's memories, they recall this sense that they couldn't trust other people, but then would say, oh, but of course I could trust my family or I could trust my friends. I've known them all my life. Of course I can trust them. And even if sometimes at the height of the purges in the 1937 and 1938, people did turn on each other, the norm was still what we would expect, really, which is that people do need and find important bonds with other people, with each other. If you got shared interests, just if you like going skiing, you probably enjoy talking opening with the, openly with the people that you go skiing with or that were in your class at school. And yet that's not been the narrative that's come out for the longest time. 
Um, but you know, from your own experience in the later, later period and from your, your, the older relatives that of course there were people that they could trust. I'm sorry. The trust thing was, was a big, big issue because, uh, uh from my studies, like my grandfather, my grandma's uh, brother was called, uh, Alexander. His name was Alexander. And I've mentioned that on the show in one of the early episodes, the fact that, you know, you couldn't really, but his name's day, because we celebrate names days here in Latvia. Uh, his name's day was an 18th of November, which is exactly the same day, which is our independence day, like our like uh, first independent Latvia independence day, which is still a celebration now. So what would happen is that that would be, he lived in a small town and um, that was, that was also already during Stalin's at least here in when when Stalin came to Baltics, that is, that was after the war, just just after the World War Two, and uh, over here, his name's day because he was the only Alexander in this small town was basically the main celebration thing because obviously they were celebrating the old Independence Day, remembering our independent Latvia. Hmm. So what would happen is that you weren't allowed to celebrate that, but everyone came. It was a massive party, and he was like five at this point. So the whole town comes together to celebrate this one kid's name's day. I love that. <laughs> but 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 uh, <laughs> they always put up on the table two extra spots because they knew some, you know, some KGB guys from the central committee or like from, from like regional committee or whatever. They're going to arrive and they're going to check, hey, what are you guys celebrating? And then they're going to show him this little kid's passport, which has been made just for this occasion, and show them, hey, his guy, this guy's name is Alexander. It's his name's day now. So we are, yes, all celebrating this. Would you please have a seat at the table? That actually that's happened. Cool. So uh, th th that's a lot of the thing because a lot of these jokes, they weren't specifically crafted. They were basically just, you know, uh, life situations taken out of context and exaggerated a bit and then laughed at. Kind of weird. Mar yeah, people find a, find a way around. They find a way to do the things that they want to do, even if the regime is saying no. And they kind of can find this parody element to go to do it rather than saying no we we reject you completely we're going to celebrate independence screw you we're going to risk arrest and everything else like no let's find a quite clever way to do it instead which is also really funny to us yeah that 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 happened like i, I kind of like this this idea that um you know you can't live in total fear and paranoia all the time it's impossible people just don't operate uh, under this and uh, in my studies, because I have a master's in Western philosophy, and I took a lot of like specializing in political philosophy, mind you, and one of my professors told me that basically that's kind of a natural response if you think about it, because all totalitarian, authoritarian regimes, all all the regimes where people are forced to live under a certain kind of level of fear, then they kind of make this. If you think about it, it's kind of similar to the World War One jokes, isn't it? Or or like kind of you know jokes told by soldiers on the front lines during World War One bit less in world war ii because it was more ideological but if you look at the if you look at the stuff that you know the soldiers were basically joking around during the first world war then then you can see something similar i think kind of this 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 uh, camaraderie and and this like hey this is what gallows humor is born this is this is kind of the the, the essence of it yeah and a really important part of it it, if it i does. make some sense here at least i, I hope that I makes do. total sense because when we when we do share jokes especially if it's kind of a bit unorthodox a bit risque we're kind of saying things that we know isn't the official version there's this interesting effect where it draws us together because to see something that's funny 
to agree that it's funny, you kind of position yourself side by side with another person and look at, from the same perspective at the same thing. Like, do you see the same thing I see? Yeah, I do see that. And because there's a risk involved, if it's some something dodgy, you, you wouldn't want to be overheard by an agent or your commanding officer regardless, you're kind of agreeing to both take a risk to, to, together. Um, it's sort of, we see it in child, in the behavior of children as well, which is where a lot of, we see these, these overlaps with humor in general. It's like, let's do a naughty thing and laugh and run away. But for adults in particular, it's this kind of freeing effect where you open yourself up to the vulnerability of maybe somebody you could, could tell on me for, for doing this, but I'm agreeing to stand here with you and look at this and look at things from this position. And it creates this kind of, um, intimacy. And we know that from not being in such extreme circumstances that if, if you meet some strangers, if you just meet somebody in a bar, if you can find something funny together, you both kind of start warming up because you can see, okay, we can find a playful energy. We can see some things from the same perspective. Maybe this guy's okay. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty nice. And, um, what about Stalin jokes? Again, more, more of them. I keep finding those, these great ones. На первомайской демонстрации колонна глубоких стариков несет плакат «Спасибо товарищу Сталину за наше счастливое детство». К ним подбегает некто в штатском. «Вы что, издеваетесь? Когда вы были детьми, товарищ Сталин еще не родился». Ну вот за это ему и спасибо. So, okay. Um, the 1st of May celebration, uh, these old people are holding aloft banners saying, thank you, Comrade Stalin, for a happy childhood, which is a big slogan that was thrown around in propaganda, thanking Stalin for a happy childhood or for anything else. For, uh, for, for having say, bread, for, for waking up Monday to work. There was this yeah, old joke, you know. Прошла зима, how was this, how was this? Прошла зима, пришла лето, спасибо Сталину за это. The winter ended, summer has come, thanks to, thanks to Stalin for that. But, for everything. Yeah, so and, and these old guys are holding the placards and someone comes up and goes, but wait a minute, you guys, when, when you were young, Stalin hadn't even been born. He's like, yes, and for that, we thank him. <laughs> Because you have to, you have to do that. I don't know. Uh, what, what made you, by the way, pick exactly the 30s in the Stalin era? Did you pick it because it was like the worst period in the Soviet life? Kinda. Um, I, I think only looking back can I sort of see the dots as I was just kind of following my interest. And I think that the dots for me is I seem to have a fascination with periods of dramatic change where people have to try to come to terms with something incredibly different um, and they have to get inhabit a new reality and try and make some kind of sense of it. What, what on earth does it mean to have a revolution and suddenly have a whole new way of life pasted on top of what you were living before? How, how is it possible to make sense of that and get through it? Plus, you know, I had some, I, I think it was the paradox of the contradiction that the excitement and possibility of what was being promised was such a long way away from how people were experiencing it. I wanted to understand better how they did because like I said at the beginning, I just found it very dissatisfying to read all these accounts of either brainwashing or people being uh, all kind of resisting internally and never buying into it because plenty of people could wish and did wish that the promises of the regime would come true. Um, and I think it's 
in any society anywhere, the, the population isn't just divided cleanly into total believers and total opponents, but there hadn't been very much sense made yet, as far as I felt, to understand, okay, well, what about the majority? How were they trying to get by and make sense of anything? Making sense? Well, comrade, that's heresy. <laughs> but all about all about like this change ad and everything, uh, I think the biggest change kind of happened when in like 1918, there were a lot of people kind of following the kind of the idealistic version of the communism. But in the 30s, when Stalin took, takes over power, and then you can also see this change because the civil war is over. The Bolsheviks have won. And at that point, there are a lot of people who are dissatisfied with the whole thing. And there's a lot of literature from the set. Like I said, the same Ilfan Petrov, the kind of famous Russian comedy guys. They're a golden cough and 12 chairs. Highly recommend it to everyone, which is a shining example of Soviet comedy. And Osta Ben, that is a classic character. Uh, yeah, they, this was written in the 30s. And so was, I think, I think, in my opinion, one of the best like books of Russian literature ever. The Bulgakov's Master and Margareta which was written then, but only published after Bulgakov's death. Have you read the book, by the way? You know, it's it's kind of shameful, but I've never managed to finish Master and Margarita. It's so strange. I've read it. I've started reading it so many times, and then I, I kind of just lose interest. I'm, a, I'm just a bad, a bad historian. <laughs> no, no, but, 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 but the start already is beautiful about, you know, little... Little girl just, you know, powering out her sunflower oil on, on the tram tracks. She didn't even know what trouble would she cause, because the whole study starts when in the 30s a tram cuts off a person's head, who just literally, who is a scientific atheist, who just had a debate with the devil about the fact that God does not exist. And the devil is highly amused by this. Mm. So he tells him that, hey, you will die by your head cut off by a tram. And that's exactly what happens. This is how the book starts. <laughs> But I got that far. <laughs> I like that bit. <laughs> no, but this this kind of helps to also ex explain explain all of um all this all this attitude. This book, by the way, was published only in the sixties after Bulgakov's death because it was highly prohibited. But about Stalin, uh, and yet Ilfan Petrov weren't like no 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 no, no. It's kind of the they, weird the weird no, no they they were published, they, but the, the book was heavily censored. I recommend you get mm -hmm. the actual scientific edition, and yes, that exists one. Mm -hmm. Where uh, recently, recently it was published over here. It was like I think it, I think it was even in English, I suppose, because I bought it that way, with all the censored parts cut out, and like put back in there with in italic, with commentaries from historians. Oh, that's cool! I'd love to see that edition because they're they're a funny example that, you know, the Stalinist regime, even though they could be so ridiculously kind of straight faced that they were unintentionally hilarious. There was humor. There were um, comedy, musical comedies. There was Ilfan Petrov. There were um, there were movies. There was um, Krakadil and uh, satirical magazines. So it wasn't that there was no place for humor in this regime. It just depended who we, who you were laughing at and what you were laughing at. And fairly predictably, they laugh. At, officially, you can laugh at corrupt local bureaucrats. Um, and you can laugh at failings in the system, or you can laugh at yesterday's orthodoxy once it's been gotten rid of. But it's kind—it's of, still sort of different because if you're laughing at a local bureaucrat and you're um, an official writer for Crocodile, the purpose is essentially to say, okay, these are the people you should be blaming for the problems. Ha ha ha! Scapegoating. But if other if ordinary people are, are laughing at local bureaucrats. 
they're coming at it with this experience of their lives being constantly screwed over by those bureaucrats. They're not looking for scapegoats or trying to channel things away from the center. Their experience, and even if they told exactly the same joke that appeared in Crocodile, the meaning of it to them is quite significantly different. This is this is the thing, by the way, which is about the whole mentality issue, because I turn to, turn to a bit more serious stuff. That's the general idea which has been there from Russian Empire throughout Soviet Union. The fact that in Russian it's called Tsar Haroshi Boyari Plahia. That's the that's the main thing, because everyone likes to blame like the the Tsar is good, the Boyars are the bad guys. In this case, local bureaucrats who take the role of Boyars. And that is, by the way, an interesting reason because in like uh Soviet Union and later Russia. This is a place where, you know, in Western Europe, and especially in America, and the, the like British Isles, I want to be kind of politically correct when I'm stating your your, your whole country's name, because I've learned... I have, <laughs> I have friends from previously in Europe podcast who are uh, Irish, but living in uh, Edinburgh, uh, and, and they're, like, very upset when I just, you know, uh, when I just call all of, all of you guys British, so... Uh, it's complex. There's so many names for the country because there's so England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Northern Ireland. See, in Latvi- and then Latvian, we just the, call the whole thing England anyway. So, yeah, that that's probably a bad move unless you're in England because English people generally they're fine with that. <laughs> it's just everyone else who isn't. <laughs> yeah, but basically the thing is, uh, this whole area, our area, is where also stand-up comedy exists, especially like in modern Russia mm-hmm. and Soviet Union, because it's kind of not seen. In Central Europe, more or less, it's, it's like, like not as much used. But then again, this whole dark humor thing, it's also been abused by the governmental powers because by laughing at the local bureaucrats, you kind of uh, let loose your um, kind of revolutionary... If, if you just, you know, go to a show and laugh at local bureaucrats and you laugh at something and some minor mm. failings, then you're less likely to protest. Sometimes, especially in modern day, those jokes get bizarre, like when Zadornov, who, by the way, was born in Latvia and was a famous Russian comedian, he died this year earlier. But yeah, he managed to make a very poor joke about when the MH17 airplane crashed. Because apparently he stated, like, in one of his jokes, which is really poor in taste, and I apologize beforehand, but he basically made a joke on stage stating that, why did the MH17 plane crash? Well, obviously it was heavier than air, and the Americans were so dumb they didn't know that. That's not even a good joke. I mean, regardless of taste. I know, but it was on public television. Hmm. Back then, they didn't have public television. Back then, in the 30s, they had just this radio and everything. But, um... It kind of stays over, and that's one of the things that I mentioned about our, our, our like uh, our own issues, which I'm going to state again here, because you guys in Western Europe and America and everywhere, you had this capitalism boom in the 70s. We didn't. Uh, we here stick to our mentality and stick to this survival mentality, which is essentially prison culture, as you said in the beginning, because all these terms, they are like mafia terms. They are like, you are a criminal for telling this joke. And a lot of the terms on slang and everything used in these jokes actually came from a criminal kind of, you know, uh, criminal atmosphere. They use a lot of prison terms, such as the term tufta in Russian, which uh, essentially means, uh, you know, not pretending to do some work. It's a method of accounting for not done work, but that's a prison term. So a lot of these terms were 
basically prison terms and this prison culture went into the major culture because everyone essentially felt like living in a huge prison that's a thing at the same time they helped people but on the other half on the other half it made a lot of people kind of not think for themselves too in a way because it enforced this prison culture as well so the jokes were funny but the, but everything around them if you think about it that that stops being funny really quickly turns into sadness and depression yeah it's it's a delicate balance because the, the way i think about it is that um well uh, there's this term that i think came from gorgle which is laughter through tears um as a way of and people have picked that up and thought okay telling jokes under a repressive regime is laughing through the tears and i think it's close but it's not quite that because you both both tears and laughter lead to the same destination which is essentially you're not taking up arms you're not risking your life overtly to take on this regime you are coming to a place of acquiescence of having to accommodate yourself to circumstances that you can't change but the route that you take to the destination changes a lot of how you feel about when you get there so if you just despair and you cry and you can't change anything you arrive at accommodation and acquiescence pretty sad um, pretty empty, you feel like you don't have any agency or ability to do anything in your life. But if you tell a joke, it's like taking the, taking the scenic route rather than going down the motorway or something. You, yeah. you arrive you arrive at the destination and at least you've shown yourself and maybe the people you care about too that you're not a fool, um, but you are ending up still at this place of like, okay, now I have to go back to work. Yeah, and this is this is kind of stuck over here which i'm kind of trying to fight against because hey after all we joined the eu and we're trying to get more progressive as we as we as we march onwards where uh it, it seems kind of weird at least we in the baltics here we, we actually try to become like <clears throat> nice wealthy european capitalists just like you comrades <laughs> but, but one thing by the way which i want to be sitting in brexit land here oh Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, whilst you join, we leave. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, one, one thing that actually happened here, for which I blame the British fully, mm -hmm. is the fact that uh, as I was researching this show and looking at uh, various jokes, I just, you know, there's a lot of potato jokes about Latvia. Everyone knows them lately, you know. Oh, really? Well, yeah, for some reason. Uh, they're popular on the internet, mm. and it's like, knock, knock, who's there? Secret police why you're coming we have no potato they're, they're unfunny they're just sad and depressing it's like knock knock who's there let me in it's cold and dark also very you know such is life the the jokes <laughs> the potato jokes about latvians which were popular in the internet and still are running around masses they were actually made by a british guy and oh, really? yeah in 2009 apparently who visited riga and lived here for a while and he didn't speak any latvian or russian whatsoever and he just hanged around and you know didn't understand what was going on and was just working and you know he had a job but he had also a blog but he didn't really you know fit in the culture and anything he didn't understand a lot so he he essentially was an office worker living here who in his blog in english decided to mock my country then he started posting potato jokes <laughs> <laughs> then they got widespread, and now everyone thinks, and, and me included at one point, I thought that, hey, it's just a continuation of these Soviet jokes who just continued on, and we're just making fun of ourselves. Turns out we're not. Turns out it's this one British guy. <laughs> that is so. That is whomever, whomever made that blog, because I can't find your name, but I did find the blog. Screw you. <laughs> 
But if you still enjoy, enjoy the jokes, I mean, how, why you use the joke makes a difference, right? Because yeah, folklorists but... have managed to trace all these like Stalin jokes back, you know, centuries into the past. But that doesn't really tell you anything about why people tell them today. Yeah, but you know, only us and the Irish are allowed to do are allowed to do potato jokes. That's it. Yeah, I don't That's know it. why is it you you two both. We need are there other people listening from other cultures with a potato joke issue, and was the same British guy involved? Discrimination of potato joke culture. <laughs> but hey, you know, uh, like Soviet humor is like food. Not everyone gets it. <laughs> that is that is cool. I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> it, it, it's it's and, uh, it's kind of it's a modern one, but it's it's and it's a really old joke. But it's running around the internet. Like if you if you look up Soviet anecdotes, that's the first one you'll get probably with with Stalin's smiling face on it. <laughs> for for some reason, I I do not know why, but. Um, when I looked up this situation, at, and if you Google up Soviet jokes, you'll get a lot of modern memes with like Stalin writing a diary, and it's like, "Dear diary, today everything was okay. Trotsky is dead." Like, for some reason, Soviet jokes carry on living uh, even today in the form of memes on the internet. They're taken out of context. People don't know the history. People just know the very basic vague stuff. But hey, I guess Pop, I guess Mister Uncle Joe made such an impact that yeah in, in a way even his memory now will be associated by the generation of the future with memes on the internet together with cat videos which were popular in early 2000s if you if you kids who are listening don't don't know <laughs> yeah i mourn the loss of the of the cat videos we think there's a lot of jokes about putin as well right there's lots of anecdotes that, that go around so it's not just I, 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 when people ask me, is, are these effective at like threatening authority? And I just, I'm, I'm unconvinced by it. I wonder what you think, because it, some people have gone so far as to say it was jokes that brought down the Iron Curtain, but I'm pretty sure it was David Hasselhoff. Yes, it but... was. <laughs> I, you're in the right track. It was jeans and rock and roll, baby. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, it was creepy videos. Things, people, uh... people telling Telling jokes about, you know, your, a, a lot of the jokes are essentially laughing at yourself and the bad situation that you're in. Or there were lots of jokes about Stalin, even if there was that myth for some people that he was the good Tsar. But that, that, that but has it, lately been improving, uh, basically uh, improving in the bad sense, uh, worsening, I suppose. Because uh, in like recent... Levada Center, which is a Russian statistics center, thinks Stalin's approval rating has gone up. And hey, we're talking about modern day politics, but um, but yeah, Putin is somehow trying to uh, imitate Stalin in a way. He openly praised him. He went to his grave in his death anniversary. He has called him a great leader. And uh, in modern Russia, they're building, they're, they're as, as they are actually destroying historical documents right now, especially like Gulag, ar Gulag archives. They're, they're burning the cards of, of prisoners and stuff. Um, in modern day Russia, a lot of people think that Stalin was actually, you know, this great builder guy. Because, hey, he brought up the industry of the nation, except at what price, at what cost, obviously. But Putin is trying to imitate him. The problem is that Putin jokes are there because that's a backlash. If you want to imitate Stalin, you're going to get Stalin jokes in your own ass. That's just, that's going to happen. But I don't, I don't think really because, um, 
you know, you you had and like uh, and now I have to explain some things about the culture here. You had the show Little Britain, right? I don't know if it's still running, but I I found out only about it later because uh, Russian television basically rips off all the shows, uh, everything. Nasha Russia. Yeah, Nasha Russia. The thing is, it was funny. It was basically this. It was political laughing at yourself, political jokes, which was uh, called Nasha Russia, and it was uh, running from two thousand and four to something. I don't know. Well, it got banned. It is no longer funny to joke about this stuff in Russia because it was funny back then in the kind of earlier days of Putin's regime. But now Putin is starting to take himself too seriously, I think. So it, it won't really, really work that much. I think that that's kind of the more problematic part. It's not that people tell jokes. It's that when leaders are unable to allow laughter directed at them, then they're putting themselves in this brittle position where they can only ever end up painting themselves further into a corner and becoming more and more violent because you can't kill jokes. You can't do that, but you can you can manage to neuter them by taking them with good grace and not taking yourself so seriously or recognizing that someone telling a joke about you isn't really a direct threat to your very real power. I know, but in my, that, that is that is why I actually think that something's gone really wrong in modern day Russia because they actually banned the showing of Death of Stalin movie, which I'm sure you've seen. At least I, I hope you have seen it. So it's, it's an amazing comedy. It's uh, That's a funny one for me, and not in the way you might expect. I, f I found it really boring. Um, I think it's quite what we call here a Marmite film. You love it or you hate I it. I like Marmite, actually. Um, are you, well, good. I'm, I'm on the other side of the fence with the, the Marmite as well. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, it's fine. The Wait. the one time when I actually visited Britain, I was given some on on some on mm -hmm. some like chips, and it was pretty okay. They didn't allow me to take it to Latvia though, because even though I bought the very tiny intense package, yeasty flavor, I know, but I liked it. Look, it's cultural differences, okay. <laughs> It's fine. Lots of people like Marmite. Um, well, lots of people like the Death of Stalin film. But like from your perspective, did you feel like it was a movie that really? had anything to do with Stalin no, and the Soviet it, Union. It didn't. Because, yeah, to me, it, it was, was just, a... this is a British slapstick comedy that just happens to be set in Russia. No, no, no. It's a bit different. You see, he, over here, it got banned, and people mm. on Radio Svoboda and Echo Moskvy, because, you know, I listen to a lot of my Russian news, mm. those people who saw it because one cinema actually ran it, and then the, secret, then the local FSB just ransacked it, and there's a lot of fines and everything. But it actually was about today's Putin's regime, because that is how oh, that so is how those how guys operate. Okay. I mean, you found you hmm. the, the slapstick and the idiocy; it is there, and it was like more about today's Putin's regime than it was about Stalin. I think because, well, hey, Russia has had a minister of culture for like many many years who once said that uh, the Russian person is special because he has one extra chromosome that has allowed him to survive all these dangers and everything. The problem is that mm. with one extra chromosome, you're, you're, you essentially have Down syndrome. <laughs> I think the death, that's quite an interesting example, the reactions to the death of Stalin film, because it tells you that a lot of humor, really, it just depends on the reception as to what people are laughing at when they see it. Because I think in Britain, people watch it and they're laughing at what seems to us like a very British comedy of people ending up kneeling in piss and falling over and being very silly. Um, but 
other people can watch it, say the Russian authorities watch it, and they see a critique of Putin's regime. But I, I don't know if really the filmmakers had that in mind. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Well, I'm not not sure really because hey, maybe I saw saw something in the movie that wasn't there. But hey, hmm. one type of joke, by the way, but that's fine. One as type the, of joke as the audience, we get to do that, you know. So it's it's interesting that you can read different things and they're equally valid. But the intent, if the idea is that it's banned because look at these terrible British people making a mockery of Putin's regime, I don't think that yeah. I doubt that was the intention. <sighs> So you don't know much about Putin's regime. Well, l- listen to our show, comrade. You'll find out. But yeah, I don't know. I, did, did you actually manage to get to translate translate all the nice kind of uh, wordplay? Chastushkas. Chastushkas like this uh, this small... Uh, I, I don't even know how to explain this. A small small poem. It's like a little song. A little yeah, yeah, like, like, like this, is, this is one which is very thematic. Stalin nasz lubimy, Stalin daragoy, Lenin uže umer, a ty ešte živoj. It's like Stalin, our loved one, Stalin dear, yeah. Lenin's already dead, but you're still alive. Three dots. Emptiness. With this sort of playful energy to it. Yeah, I guess so. I guess. When I do translations of jokes to English, because English is not my native language, I really have to think about uh, making them funny and making them like make sense. Because uh, and and you, you just do it a bit naturally. You can ex- you can explain Soviet hum- humor to Westerners better than I do. I have to give you credit there. I had to have a lot of practice. It took ten years to do this project and turn it into a book afterwards. And a lot of the translations, I really kind of bled and sweated over for a long time just trying to get it because it's not just a literal thing you then like if if you're giving the presentation or you're telling someone a joke and they're kind of familiar with the context or know something about communism they're going to find it funny hopefully but if they don't you have to go so there was this thing called collectivization let me just catch you up on that first (laughs) no but a lot of these jokes are also at least in modern day if you if you tell them they probably would sound um, well. That is why I explained that they were all made in Odessa by Ashkenazi Jews, because Mr. Rabinovich, your archetypical, stereotypical Jew, who's actually a wisecracker and smart person, he just uh, he's kind of the hero of many of these things, because because you know uh, one one of these jokes, which was again later, but it's about immigration, but which kind of explains the situation was like. 
Rabinovich is, is moving to Israel and the border guards in, in Russia ask him, you know, why are you why, why are you bringing this Lenin's Lenin's bust with you? And he says, well, when I'm going to be in in uh, Israel, I'm going to put it on my table and show shows show my wife Zara there that, you know, this is this this is this man built communism. And then the Israeli border guards ask him, "Well, hey, why, why are you bringing the, bringing this bust of, of of Lenin into our country? What, what's this? It's it's huge. It's made from metal." And he answers, "Well, I'm going to put it into the bathroom, and every time I take a shit, I'm going to laugh. I'm going to look at it and laugh." And then he comes back home and puts the bust uh, bust on public space, and his wife Zara asks him, "Hell, why why did you bring a Lenin's bust in our home?" And he responds, "Zara, to you it might be Lenin's bust, but for me it's two kilograms of gold." <laughs> Yeah, that's. I mean, that also illustrates as well, like the different ways in which you can read uh, anything into a particular symbol. Yeah, I know, I know. And, and you can tell tell a joke different ways. And, and please, ways. please, dear listeners, I, I, the problem is that Rabinovich and all these things, the the crafty Jew stereotype is a kind of, a, it's in a lot of these jokes, uh, because they were made in Odessa. Yeah, it, it is in so. people. Well, a, a lot of them came from from Odessa for for sure, but you know, these this humor, this culture grows up in all sorts of different places, kind of simultaneously. Yeah. And when we when we look back through the lens of these collections, like like the one that um, that you've got, this one thousand and one anecdote, it kind of bundles all of these different ones together that have appeared at different places at different times. There's an awesome book I, I can send you the uh, a copy of um, by Misha Melnichenko. Um, which is he's kind of cross-referenced from every conceivable source all of these anecdoti for the whole Soviet period and kind of shown, okay, this one, there's no evidence for it in the country at the time. It probably came from emigres, but this one, there's multiple sources in different places. Okay, this was probably part of a living folklore or oral culture at the time. Like he's got God knows how many thousands of jokes in there, and he's done all this work to try and trace where you, some of them came because a lot were imported. If you if you would send me some, I would be amazed. I'd be really honored to. It's an awesome book, and his but introduction to it as well. He really explains the complexities of trying to talk about this because mm. folklore is something that it just grows and we share it, and no one really knows where it comes from. But sometimes there is an origin. Yeah, but modern folklore is a thing in process, I think, and these jokes are are a mm. part of this. Is if you think folklore is something about like, and this is to my listeners here, if you think folklore is something like old, that it's not. Folklore is living. Folklore is literally that. And yeah, I, I personally, you know, um, I, I often tell jokes on my show, but I, I tend to stick to those which were actually told to me by my, my ancestors, my parents, their friends and stuff. Because, mm. you know, then, then I at least know that they were actually told in the Soviet Union. Yeah, for sure. It was just trickier for me to get the ones that were definitely happening in the 1930s because there's so much more that came after then. Um, but you you were about to make a really good point, I think, about the the, the Jew character, which is it, it looks on the surface like it ought to be anti-Semitic. Why is it always a Jew? And yet this character tends to come up because it's a stock character for jokes and stories and the attributes that are given to the Jew are usually really positive like being cunning and crafty which in russian the whole hitri kind of word this that's a positive character trait to have for um a, a kind of a figure in a story and so people are meant to identify with that character whereas i think a lot of jew jokes in other cultures and languages that tends to be a much more negative picture 
Yeah, I, I think that's that's kind of historical because over here in Eastern Europe, at least over here in the Baltics and and like in Ukraine where the Jew jokes originate from, uh, in Russian Empire though they were autonomous territories, and while in Russia proper Jews were oppressed just like you know in Western Europe. Mostly, actually, because uh, following Western Europe's example, because a lot of Russian czars were uh, kind of fans of that. But over here, as they were autonomous territories, they were kind of living freely. So this is where Ashkenazi culture comes from. So then they decided to apply this thing. And this whole making fun of yourself thing, uh, which happens in Soviet culture, it has these Jewish origins because it comes straight up from this Ashkenazi thing. If you if you look at Freud, for example, uh, he lived in Prague. He was an Ashkenazi himself, and and he basically kind of separated all this all this issue. And he said that back then in his writings, you can find that he describes it as a specifically Jewish trait because they have been oppressed all their lives throughout Europe and everything. And they make like these Jewish jokes about themselves and their communities. And mm. then the Soviet Union comes and, you know, we get this oppressive regime. And then this uh, sort of Ashkenazi culture spreads to, the, spreads to the masses. At least that's how I see it, especially since Czechoslovakia got into the Soviet bloc too as well. Well, not in the 30s. That, that would happen later. But uh, I, I can I, I kind of draw, draw the it... connection here because in my, you know, I studied psychoanalysis and I read these writings by Freud. Uh, and then I understood that, hey, there, there's some connection there. I can't really explain it myself, but I, I feel that there's something there going on there in the background. I think there's definitely something going on, but I, I would see it not so much as we, I don't think there needs to be a direct link of like, here is this Jewish culture and it influences yeah, well, obviously, but but there's but there's inspiration of it at least. I don't know. Like I said, I'm sure there's there's mixing and inspiration. But what we could also see it as is if you are in a culture and a people that is being hounded and oppressed, and you're in situations where laughing at yourself is a way at least to feel as though okay, we can lighten the experience of how awful our current situation is, and nobody laughs at ourselves better than we do. That these are things; these are human responses to situations like that. So I'm not saying there's no connection so much as it doesn't have to be that one grows directly out of the other. So much as if you put humans in in those sorts of circumstances, that's the kind of reaction that you're going mm. to get. Yeah, I guess so. Well, like I said, I'm not an expert on on these things. You are, so thank you for explaining this. <laughs> Why? Well, that's that's my take. You know, it's not something that can really be proven either way. Also, here's a joke for you. Another one. <clears throat> I'm gonna, I'm gonna continue this tradition, and you get to explain it to our listeners. Между Великобританией и СССР произошел обмен опытом. Великобритания встала на путь и завела двух королёв. Одну про помышленности, другую по сельскому хозяйству. В СССР решили на британский манер перейти на левосторонние движения и сразу пустили для начала 100 машин по левой стороне. I don't think I can try to translate that one. I got lost halfway okay, through. Okay. You're going to have to so, do uh, it. <laughs> there, was, there was a deal between, between the UK and the USSR. There was an um, experience exchange program. 
the the UK the UK decided to do the do it the Stalin's route and make uh, like increase the amount of ministries and you know split the power and created two kings one for one for the industry other one for agriculture in the USSR they decided to start driving according to the British manner and instantly uh, instantly did this by just launching hundred cars on the on the right side or, or, sorry on the left side on the road. Hmm. That's the joke about this is this is the unfunny joke if you don't know the whole part of this because because um, it's it's about the fact that in the USSR and and at least Stalin's era they were at one point they were trying to you know overcome the West and take over the West and do stuff like that and but they failed at it miserably because it's the special Soviet take on this and you know if you would put 100 cars instantly on the other side of the road and not do anything else then you, know, you can you can follow all the things but it's it's one of those unfunny jokes it's uh, but it, it it is funny that was the only one that had written it, in well, it i appreciate the thought i appreciate the thought but that also <laughs> what it's one of those jokes that like a lot of them that i like that beautifully sums up something very simply in its absurdity that that's exactly the kind of attitude that they were trying to pursue under Stalin, which was, okay, we need to do everything at maximum power now. Uh, you're like, oh dear, you know, that, that doesn't really go very well. It's like getting, getting a, a brand new piece of machinery and saying that you need to totally max it out to meet completely unrealistic targets, and then you're surprised when it breaks, and that's exactly what they did. But essentially, when, when, when my relatives and, and friends who were like living in Valmiera, where we had this massive like meat factory, a meat factory there reproducing plant who, that makes sausage and stuff and and when the people who work there they they are they're making like these sausages every day but then they just see the sausages put up in trains and transported god knows where based basically to the army parts into the special nomenclature stores when like when you produce high quality products but those products are never seen anywhere then what do you do well, then you it's like make... modern China for many people working in the Apple factories. Like, yeah, but th that's that's how Soviets operated, and that also kind of this this real life intertwines with the humor, and that is that is what I like about those jokes because it's like the jokes have to come from somewhere, and and I know that a lot of them, at least the ones that I, I use on the show, they come from some real life situation that got exaggerated. A lot of these things kind of you know. Even and they kind of show the the zeitgeist. Even like even if this this one thing didn't exactly happen as it was written in this joke, it could have yeah. happened, because that's that's the important part to remember about the Soviet jokes, because you can you can basically uh, think about that they could have happened, and you know there's a there's a chance greater than zero that this would happen because they kind of describe the time and about collectivization. For example, there's this joke: what's a skeleton? And the answer is that's uh, Kolhoznik, you know, Kolhoz person, who ha who is given uh, to the government uh, kind of the meat, the meat, eggs, meat, eggs, wool, and everything else, basically. Like in Russian, it's что такое скелет? Это колхозник, который издает государству шерсть, сало, мясо и яйца. So you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a joke, but it did happen because people did starve. And those jokes, those stories in the Russian political anecdotes, you know, they must have happened. Something similar, at least, must have happened somewhere. It, it's weird because you know, if you if you look at least at least British comedy, and this is kind of my my ending question, like, how would you compare British comedy to these Soviet jokes? Because 
for one, my favorite British humor ever comes from, and I'm, like, I like Monty Python, all the, all the power to them. I like Holy Grail, and I like Life of Brian, and I like their stuff. Mm-hmm. But the most I like Blackadder. Blackadder is mm, my, my Black all-time Adder. favorite, uh, like, comedy show. So I like that because it was also kind of this dark, slightly dystopian tale about this crafty guy this Hitri dude, which is kind of like uh, this Jewish character in our political jokes. But but yeah, so I, I kind of saw some similarities there, but how would you compare British humor to the Soviet one? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I certainly found that the British humor, because it's quite dark, or that's the part of it that I like, where it can be quite surreal and dark, that I think made it easier for me to to genuinely enjoy the Soviet jokes, whereas a lot of my uh, colleagues at the time were had trouble kind of getting into it or seeing what was funny because it was too dark. I think Americans in particular, um, it's maybe a bit, it's a bit tricky, not all, but obviously some, because it's a, it's a different cultural kind of similarity that maybe doesn't go over to America quite so easily. Um, but I think, a lot of British humor play and Monty Python, Blackadder, they play with a sort of surreal edge where we laugh at how absurd all of our social norms and conventions are. And I think that it particularly helps that it's so surreal because a lot of British society is still quite straight laced. There's still this culture of you need to act a certain way, be polite in certain ways. And people have a lot of trouble. There isn't like this sanctioned cultural space to be able to say what you really think. So it's really, it's genuinely difficult for us to complain in a restaurant if we don't like the food or to ask for our money back if something bad has happened. It's like, oh no, that's really socially awkward. I can't deal with that. So I know, I know. Humor, that, that's, that's, that's an American um, thing because I've had American guests here and we don't do that either. So hmm. uh, that, that's, that's our similarity. But yeah, my American guests, they actually have complained in restaurants about the food and, and stuff like that. And it's like... Because they expect better. Yeah, but... But you have to complain to people and then someone will come over and you're going to have to talk. I know it's horrifying to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's, oh, there's wow. that kind of similarity with, with, with Soviet humor, the dark, the dark bit. But I think that um, the, it, it, there's still significant differences because, whilst the, I don't know, the, the British do have a kind of eye rolling, oh, well, things are shit, but we're just going to laugh at it kind of situation. But they have never had to deal with anything as bad as, say, life under Stalin. And I originally thought maybe I would do a project where I compared humor under the Nazi regime and under the, the under Stalin's regime, but it was never going to go anywhere because ordinary Germans' humor at the time they were not really having to deal with anything on the same scale. Their jokes were like, ha-ha, Goering has got a lot of medals, how no, amusing. And, and I, um, I actually different. have a comment on this because I, I had a book. Sure. Uh, Latvia was under Nazi occupation as well for a brief period of time. And I thought it would be really great because I saw a book in Antiquarium, which was from that era, which was called German Humor. You know, uh, printed uh-huh. in 1941, just straight up when we are under Nazi occupation. I thought, hey... Hey, Nazi jokes, that would be fun. Like, not, not not jokes about Nazis, but literally Nazis jokes. 
And the book mm. starts with the fact it's in Latvian, and the book already starts with the fact that <clears throat> even though Latvians are, you know, the, La- Latvians and other Eastern Europeans, even though they are basically, you know, second-rate people, they might one day grow up to understand the magnificent German jokes. That's in the intro. Ha ha ha. That's in the intro. Every and then, then literally every joke is terrible. Like for one, uh, the, the one joke that I remember because I have to look at my, you know, my, my huge pile of history books there. But uh, essentially, it was a joke about a German officer, and they're like really long too. The, the, this German officer who works at the night shift with with the the, the ciphering machines, he essentially, you know, uh, he sends out. Uh, he also sends out kind of uh, numbers of trains as well. Just you know, not, train numbers which are which are kind of sent off and stuff because it's bureaucracy. And then at one mm-hmm. point he he basically sends the train numbers uh, he, and he mixes up his the deci- deci- letters to be deciphered and his train numbers and sends train numbers to to his kind of overseers and whatever and the overseers decipher the me- decipher the train numbers as it was as if it was a coded message and then it sells oh well and there is a new queen in Montenegro and she has basically uh, and she has some random stuff and there's winter and blah 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 random nonsense that's the joke. They are not what you were hoping for. Nothing, literally nothing. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but Nazis, Nazis made terrible jokes. Nazis were terrible people in general, but their jokes were also shit. I'm, I'm blatant about it. So, I have read them. <laughs> they are bad. Whereas, if if you read, there's there's a book called Laughter in Hell, which is a, a collected humor that was passed around in Auschwitz amongst the prisoners then they really are funny. And Vic, in Viktor Frankl's book as well, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, there's, he talks about humor a bunch of times amongst the concentration camp inmates because humor in a place of suffering is the humor that tries to bond people together that is genuinely funny even in the bleakest of times, whereas humor from this sort of position of power is a pretty different thing and it's kind of laughing at people weaker than you and it's very hard to identify that unless you're part of those powerful people. Yeah, that's the thing. When 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 your joke book starts out, when you laugh at authority from a position below that, then that's funny. When you are the oppressive authority and you laugh at the people that you oppress, and you try to kind of make them laugh with you, then that that stops being funny really quickly. It's like the opposite of humor. You're just sort of staring at them, going, "What is going on here?" It's it's. I think I think uh, I watch uh, I watch a movie review guys uh, called Red Letter Media, and they I don't know uh, they they taught me the term nonmedy. It's like when someone is trying like there's nothing worse than a terrible joke because when something is like so unfunny but tries to but thinks itself to be funny so hard that it actually makes you a bit sadder. It actually makes you sad at how miserable this whole thing is. That's called nonmedy. It is it is some somewhere even b- below the the just not funny part. Yeah, but yeah, you can't really you can't you can't really force jokes. So I suppose. No, though 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 we try in the podcasting world, <laughs> there's no audience to let us know if the the jokes are falling flat or not. Ah oh, well. You have to try. Like for example, this one. This one you will try. Где больше всего хлеба в Советском Союзе? В котлетах. Ask where is the majority of bread in the Soviet Union? In the meat cutlets. I I think they're meatballs. 
There's a lot of things that I actually... I I don't know, really, because there are a lot of terms that, uh, for for me, and and you're a British person, you can probably help me. How do you translate salo to English? You know what? I don't. I only think of it as salo. (laughs) I know the Germans have the term speck, which is kind of that. Then we also Mm -hmm. have pelmeni, which would be dumplings, I guess, but also not quite. It's kind of like stuffed pasta. I would say but it's, it's 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 Im, Im, imagine ravioli, but not exactly. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And also the fact that you can buy it. I don't know if it's true in Latvia, but when I was in the Russian supermarkets, you buy pelmeni, and it's it's got meat in it. That's all it tells you. No idea what sort of meat. <laughs> Is it human meat? You don't know. It's it's meat. It's just meat. That's all you need Look. to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's the thing here. Uh, because uh, over here, pelmeni in Latvia too, they're, they're the standard foods. Also, shuba. I hope you have tried shuba. I'm not sure That's if the I thing have. that the people people really are freaked out about this whole situation. But as you've been to Russia, I'm going to ask. Uh, shuba is the herring salad with beet and the egg. Oh, yeah. No, that's great. I know, right? But people kind of, you know, when, 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 when my guests arrive, sometimes I try to give them some. And they're like, what is this? That, that's pickled herring with with egg and and beets on it what what is this that that is a delicious meal is what that is (laughs) come on people same with kefir yeah that's different levels of kefir um for me sometimes if it's it's if it's more towards yogurt i'm okay if it's moving too far away i have problems I know there's the yeah because the kefir for us is essentially just like milk everywhere else it's you can buy milk Mm. in different packages oh wow (laughs) It's re- it's really great to have these cultural differences to have this discussion too uh, about these cultural things because you know what a lot of my listeners haven't been to Russia or Eastern Europe so it's always interesting to find out personal stuff from this. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for 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 talking to me. If you have any, <clears throat> if you have any last words, I will hear them now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I don't think I have any last words. It's been a pleasure to be invited on the show and to be able to talk about this subject with you and just dive into the anecdote. Um, and uh, you, I'm sure you're going to launch into the talk about the, the, the competition if people want to get the book. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. This is this is what, what we're going to do now. So, folks who are listening to this show, we made a small deal with John here. Uh, please email me your political jokes, whatever they are. Because not they don't have to be Soviet jokes. You can make jokes about your own country or other countries or whatever. They have to be political jokes. Uh, just mail us some political jokes. We will pick the best. Well, I guess I'll pick the I'll, I'll I'll pick some you know top five and then send them to John and then John picks the best one. And the winner will get twenty rubles from me and a communist membership party pin, and from John a signed book of a signed copy of his book, which is amazing. So uh, please do. Our email is theeasternborder at gmail.com. Send in your jokes and I'll send them to John for, you know, because he is a, uh, he has PhD in joke science. That's right. Which I'm, is no I'm joke. a funny historian. Uh, for the joke historian, as my a friend of mine likes to call me. Um, if anyone else wants to check out the book, it is on Amazon and it's called It's Only a Joke, Comrade, Humor, Trust and Everyday Life Under Stalin. Um, and it's out in paperback and has got a very cool cover. And as you have heard on this show, by the, I, I've seen the cover; it's amazing. But yeah, as you've seen, as you've seen on the show, 
the jokes actually tell a lot about the people. It's a part of the culture. It's about about the lore. It's less about the humor than it's about people who make them and how it all interacted. Because <laughs> at one point, things stop being simple when you look at them deep enough. Then they start being simple again. That's right. It's almost like Zen. Also, I will send you your. I will. I will. I will now send you your secret KGB materials, comrade. Thank you for being <laughs> a agent. Oh wait, I probably shouldn't record. Okay, thank you, John. It was a great conversation, and and thanks for being on the show. Everyone, go and check out It's Only a Joke, Comrade. Buy John's book. It's amazing, and send us in your jokes. Well, I I guess I guess it works both ways. Um, do you have an audiobook version as well? Because I have a lot of people with uh, disabilities here uh, who are like dyslexic, and you know, the podcasting world is a blessing for the people for the disabled people will you make an audiobook as well about that that's an yeah, important thing I, by I the way i intend to make an audiobook and i want to record it myself um which which shouldn't be too difficult because it will just take a lot of time I, i've got my own podcast if people want to check that out it's called voices in the dark and we'll be yeah oh, oh you I'm do sorry. you should have told me earlier yeah we, everyone check out voices in the about, dark um please do like a lot of different things but it's essentially what we call learning how to human trying to understand ourselves better the way that we think we work social dynamics we've got a whole series on sex and relationships at the moment which is proving much more popular than when we were just talking about stoicism so hey <laughs> dude i'm a self-proclaimed stoic myself seneca and marcus aurelius are my best buddies so we are we have a continuing series called the modern stoic where we talk about the letters of seneca and how they might tell us things that would still help us today in our modern lives. So I'm big into the stoicism. I'm just amused that as soon as we start talking about uh, sex, people are much more vocal <laughs> and on board. Um, it's because yeah, it's, it's because it's, it's, well, you, I don't have to tell you what Seneca would have to say about this. Let people read Seneca, then make their own decisions. They should. Um, so on the pod, on my podcast, Voices in the Dark, we'll be talking about the book some more in some depth, but I do intend to use our podcasting equipment and record the audiobook version. I just have to work out how to set that up through uh, so that it will appear on Audible rather than some uh, random website. But uh, I will get that out there. It will definitely happen. Anyhow, thank you for being on the show. And uh, goodbye, listeners. I hope you enjoyed this interview. And uh, yeah, as per usual, we'll be continuing with our Stalin series, which, yeah, John might enjoy as well, because we're going through uh, from Stalin's birth up until the very end. And we're about to hit the period that John's book is all about. So it's going to be amazing. So yeah, see you next time. And до свидания, товарищи. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.